by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. We know that when there is a poor community next to a thriving community, that that is actually the first place that gentrification is going to occur. Because when gentrification happens, even the people that are in that community, they're going to be priced out and pushed out. So where are they going to go? To the abutting neighborhood. So for us, it was like, hey, everyone, this might not happen for 10 years. It might not happen for 15 years. But this will happen. That's Rawa Gamatian, the executive director of Push Buffalo. She is our guest today, and I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Well, I am very excited to have our next guest on, um, and it's uh, Rawa and she is the executive director of Push Buffalo. And she's going to get right into that and explain all about Push Buffalo. But we met uh, when we actually were creating, which, which has now become the name of this platform, Think 100%. But it was first, like anything in hip hop, it was a baseball cap <laughs> when it first started. And... Uh, we were working with uh, the Solutions Project, shout out to the Solutions Project and all those good folks. And we were doing a baseball cap that was uh, called Think 100%. And at the time, we were also honoring uh, Push Buffalo for all the amazing work that they were doing. Um, Rawa is literally um, from... Uh, her family, just to be clear, fled the violence um, over um, in, in Africa um, and literally uh, fled the violence by walking for 16 days to safety in Sudan. And then that's when she, they were then relocated to the western New York and eventually landed uh, on the west side of Buffalo, where Rawa was educated in the school system and started her path to activism. Um, she is amazing. She has done so much in working with community-based organizations in Western New York and obviously promoting community development. And she um, was the uh, director of the Ujima Company, uh, which is a multi-ethnic professional theater company. So we share some connection there and how we use culture to create change, um, but now, uh, she is the amazing, um, executive director of Push Buffalo and she's our guest today. Rawa, how are you doing? I'm doing excellent, Rev. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm excited to have you. And I think I told you this before, but many people who don't, who know me, they know me probably primarily from being from Louisiana. And then now living uh, in uh, the D.C. area um, and, and also being the president of the Hip Hop Caucus. So you probably say, well, he's also got his New York roots. But those New York roots don't just go to only New York City, which you may or may not know, is that my parents 
used to live in the great city of Buffalo, New York, <laughs> where, where Rawa is, is getting it. Uh, I used to live there uh, as a kid. Actually, to tell you the truth, when I was a kid, it was the first, first time I got mugged was in Buffalo. This <laughs> 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 was my first as a little kid. Welcome to Buffalo. I have a little school pack and and somebody welcomed to me and took my little school pack. I'm like, man, Buffalo tough. I didn't know Buffalo was gonna be that tough. So Rawas from the from the mean streets of Buffalo. Rawas. <laughs> so how are you doing? And how is Buffalo doing? So I just have to first of all say about Buffalo. Um, someone told me when I was a very young girl when I first came here that Buffalo is the best training ground. <laughs> and in all my travels across the country, I have discovered one thing. All roads lead to Buffalo. Wow. Um, let me just tell you a very interesting story about Buffalo. John Lewis lived here when he was a young man. Wow. So um, it's, just, it's, it's just a very funny thing that everywhere I go, there's always some connection to the city. Uh, I think the city is a very interesting city. Uh, we are, sadly, the third poorest city in America mm. currently. We are uh, one of the most segregated communities in the country, and the inequities are highly racialized. Mm -hmm. But of course, with Buffalo, it's also an incredible training ground, as I've said, because it has, it has so much to offer. For example, at one point, many people don't know this, but Buffalo was the sixth largest economy in the world. Our grain elevators fed the world. So you know, our grain that was produced right here in Western New York and in the United States shipped to places like Kuwait and Egypt and France, where all that good bread is. And um, we've also had some of the most renowned scholars, um, you know, artists and architects. We were, of course, known as the City of Light. Uh, hydropower with Tesla was first, first happened right here in Niagara Falls. And also the roots of the NAACP and the Underground Railroad. So it's a, it's a very rich history. And of course, what we're trying to do in Buffalo is um, not only rebuild the city, in particular centering in our cultural heritage and traditions, where this was also, when I do a land recognition, uh, the powerful indigenous community, the Haudenosaunee, um, it is their land that we're standing on, mm -hmm. but also during the migration from the south to the north looking for good jobs. And we had, you know, huge industry like Bethlehem Steel, um, automaking. A uh, huge population of African Americans from Alabama and Mississippi settled here in Buffalo, looking for you know better opportunities and jobs and uh, wealth creation, generational uh, wealth building for their families. And that lasted for a little bit of time. We did have a significant middle class um, African American community, but sadly, by 1970, we'd lost half of our population. All the industry closed, and there wasn't a Plan B. And so, as we are now reviving the city. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about Push Buffalo, of course, which is the organization I'm working for. Um, you know, it, it, it has such a rich history. And for me, you know, I always tell people, I don't know how I get into the places that I've been employed in, um, except that I've always been rooted in social justice because of how I came into the world and the violence that I came into the world and being displaced from my community that I did not want to leave. Uh, but also when I came to this country, um, I was about, I came when I was eight and I was about nine or 10 when I realized that I didn't have a word for it, but I was experiencing something and I was feeling something that made me, uh, that it felt dangerous to me. 
and I was scared. And it had something to do with the color of my skin. And that was very new for me, you know? Um, And so, of course, that word is racism. And that's what I was experiencing, racism. And I needed to really understand it because my parents as new immigrants and uh, my mother in particular, who was not a very good English speaker, didn't really have the context for it. And I felt like I needed to be able to protect my, my younger siblings, three of them. And so... Starting at the age of nine or 10, honestly, I started to uh, study revolutionary history. (laughs) And by the time I graduated eighth grade, I probably knew more about uh, Black history and um, colonialism uh, than probably any of my teachers. And throughout my entire life, I think I've always rooted in social justice and used different tools. Um, So when I started working at this incredible theater company, Ujima, which which is one of the seven principles Um, In Swahili, that means collective work and responsibility. And that really spoke to my heart and it felt like home. And what I appreciated about this company was that um, that, they really felt and they would teach us this. And they said, in order for a working class community to be free, we must seize the means of production. And so in 1978, when they started this collective, that's how they wanted to build the beloved community and that they were going to seize the production of our cultural experience. And that, you know, in in order to be part of that company, uh, we were all well-trained. We had to be scholarly. We had to be practiced. We had to be unified. And we had to be in absolute control of our creative agenda. And also self-determining and autonomous in the world of theater. Unlike the Western, you know, cultural experience. Um, and that we would do it through a shared responsibility, that we would work collectively for our community and responsible for each other. And, and that, you know, we saw the world, you know, building the beloved community for us. The community is the world. But what should we affect is right in front of us. And so we thought of ourselves as world citizens and world artists um, and that we had to be excellent um, you know, in, in the work that we did, uh, that it had to be rooted in thorough historical accuracy and that building a family was a, was the strong foundation that we rooted in and that that kind of theater was going to bring healing. Mm-hmm. So, and then from there, of course, I've done other kinds of things, but um, really uh, Push Buffalo was an organization while I was at Ujima that we partnered with. Uh, we were both located on the west side of Buffalo and we, the kind of work and the kind of theater that we did very much aligned with, uh, with their strategies and how they implemented community control of resources and um, addressing racial, economic, and environmental injustice in our community. And so oftentimes, we would have blocks of theater tickets for their members, their staff, and to use the kind of theater that we were doing to root them in history and uh, political analysis. I think it's important for people to know who you are and your background, because I think that what has made you who you are is that you came and you were born during a civil war and your family fled that violence. Um, And being from where you're from and coming here, and I too, my parents were both born in Trinidad and and came to this country. So I understand what it means to be living in this country and having parents and um, 
from a different part of the world. But you came in the midst of the Civil War, which is different. And I guess I kind of want you to kind of explain more so about um, that, a little bit more background on that and how that has also shaped you. Who is Rawa Gamatsyan? Absolutely. I mean, everything, I think being connected to who you are and where you're from is so important. So I often, when I begin to tell the story of myself, will actually start with my name. So Rahwa or Rawa, as most people say, um, actually means unity. Mm. Um, there are many of us in my age group that are named that or Salam, which means peace, which is what the people wanted. They wanted unity. They wanted peace. Um, and, and, and Eritrea is the country that I'm from. It is a tiny little country nestled along the Red Sea to the west or to the east is Somalia, to the south is Ethiopia, to the west are Sudan and a little bit of Egypt. Uh, it's four million people and we have five major ports. So it's a great, it's a major shipping and tourism city. And during the scramble for Africa, um, Italy colonized my little country and used it as their play field for, for generations. And then, of course, when it was no longer in style to be thought of as colonizers, they just left in 1959. And so, um, interestingly, uh, Ethiopia, which um, I love the people, people of Ethiopia, um, and we have very, very similar traditions, customs, uh, dress, uh, and, and food. But... Uh, we do speak different languages, but also there are many different languages spoken, even in, in Eritrea. Uh, the three major groups or three major religions are Christians, um, uh, Muslims, and um, actually Jews. And so there's a whole history there that I won't get go into. But, um, you know, uh, at that point, uh, Ethiopia, which has 64 million people, uh, saw it as an opportunity to take over because they're completely landlocked. And, you know, it was really a decision made to try to have access to water. And um, they started a civil war with us. And Italy, after having colonized us and extracted many of our resources for several, you know, decades, uh, just left. And we were kind of on our own. And so in that, um, it was a 30-year civil war. They actually did not have their truth until last year in 2019. I think you saw that. But my, my father was very much involved in this war, and they were coming to uh, kill him. And so he escaped first and then sent for his family uh, to get to Sudan, where he was. And so we had to, unfortunately, burn all of our belongings. And in the middle of the night, walk. It was myself, my mother, uh, my brother, who's two years older than me. I was five years old. And then I had two younger siblings, a three-year-old and a brand new newborn. And it was a community of us that uh, were being smuggled out of there. And we had to, as I said, walk there. And, it, you know, there were a few moments where things got very, very hectic with tanks and we were going to get caught. Um, and for 15 minutes a day on that walk, my brother and I could get on a donkey just to relieve us of the walking. And what we did is we hid by day and walked at night. Hmm. And I think um, what that taught me was, I think a level of resilience 
Um, but I also definitely from some of the older folks, you know, the, the experience of trauma, many of them had mental health issues, all kinds of PTSD. They had to leave loved ones behind and how, you know, the war just devastated people. And interestingly, when the war was won, many people in Ethiopia helped the Eritrean People's Liberation Front ultimately win because they did not agree. And they really considered us to be brothers and sisters. And I think I carry that with me in the work that I do in trying to build a multiracial, multi-generational movement. Uh, when I think about what is collective work and responsibility, we as human beings are brothers and sisters. And we have to build with each other. Um, and, and we have to take care of Mother Earth and, you know, in the natural world because this is our home. And really the ethnicity part to me has always been interesting as a student of history is I really see it as um, gifts to one another because how boring would it be if we were all the same? If we all ate the same food, spoke the same language, dressed in the same way. Um, but when we have an exchange of food, when we exchange cultural ideas, um, you know, there's always an overlap here and there, but the differences is what makes us really interesting and in how we grow and develop um, our creative souls. Hmm. Well, I, 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 you know, it's it's amazing that you are taking that um, that experience and now using it to liberate others, liberate them uh, in their physical conditions, uh, liberate them in their political conditions. And so, Robert, I thank you for that. That's just very powerful. And you mentioned those are real things that cause PTSD. Um, in many of our, in our community. And, and so sometimes you don't overcome that. And so, and, and you never overcome it. Sometimes you just got to just live with it. So I commend you on that. I know many who use what they've gone through um, to help those to do better. You mentioned John Lewis, uh, may he rest in power. And, you know, he, he used being beaten and thrown in jail and uh, all that he went through in fighting Jim Crow, he used that to make try, try to make this country and this world better. And you have definitely done that. Let me just say that. You know what I mean? I'm a big student of Reverend Lewis because he not only did that and showed how powerful and how magical of a person he was, but that he just was firmly rooted and determined to do it in love. Hmm. And I think that's what we need. You know, we need to heal. Um, you know, I, as you know, political analysis is one of my things. And, you know, as I think of where we are in this country, and I remember I, this is a terrible thing to say, and I, I hope it's appropriate to say it on your show. Um, you know, when I was like maybe freshman year in high school, I, you know, being provocative, I think did say, but it was in my heart is I always have wondered why black people just don't wake up one day collectively and decide, okay, today is the day and just like shoot all white people. Mm. In some ways, that is the fear that white people have that keep us down. And I really wanted to have that conversation because, you know, I think as a young person, maybe I wasn't as, you know, my, my worldview wasn't as big and what have you. But I really just recall thinking that having read so much history and what people have been through, and it made me really just think about the depth of Black people's ability to be a container for terrible things that happen to them 
yet we wake up and put a smile on our face and are determined to find joy and beauty in things that are certainly not beautiful. And somehow we manifest that there is something really um, big and important about that that I would love to just dig deeper into. Yeah, no, no, no. You can, you can discuss that on this show. <laughs> you can have that conversation right here. Uh, that's that's that, that's that's all right. And for those who are listening to that, let me just say that that's a real question. And you have to understand it's it's very similar to when you have a spouse who is beating somebody every single day. And then one day that spouse wakes up and is not taking it no more. And so you have to figure out what is going on in the mental psyche of that person. Um, And so what's been asked is when you have seen communities, particularly Black and Indigenous people of color, who have been brutalized and have been marginalized um, for so long and have taken the trauma there, there are many who, who, who wonder, and I, and I think that what you're saying is simply that there is something, um, and it's not people say, well, that's just, you're just being stupid. You know, you're not, you're not, you should fly back. No, this is the thing. There's something about love, and love conquers all. And there's something very powerful about that in which even when you're oppressor, you believe in something bigger which is why I always say that organized people be organized money every single time because the power of people and the power of love to overcome even the things that don't even make sense to be able to still have faith and have have your have have a sane mind and and just be able to still function despite all that's been going on around you it's amazing. So you're you're very right in that, and I think that that is something that we and that's why the the, the in the spirit of John Lewis and many others, the spirit of of nonviolent action was so important, but also the spirit which we also mentioned as well, the spirit of of educating yourself um, and being politically astute, being being better than um, is such an important thing. Um, you've done that, Rawa, and so and you've also you just love. Uh, you love you some uh, Buffalo West Side. <laughs> I do. There's something about the city. I call it the boomerang city because I've tried to leave many times. Actually, you know, when I was in high school, like mid-year, my mother decided to move to Seattle, Washington, where my family lives now. Um, and so I graduated high school from there. And somehow I boomerang right back to Buffalo. And then I lived down south. I lived in North Carolina. I went to UNC for a year and thought I would maybe, you know, have roots there. And I decided that I, I didn't want to do that and somehow came back to Buffalo. So it's a, it's a very funny thing. And then um, I finally just gave up trying to leave and said, okay, I'm clearly just something about the city keeps pulling me here. So let me, <laughs> get, you know, put my roots down here. And It could be the snow. Maybe, maybe you didn't like a lot of snow. I, mean, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. Man, that could be... Like, I was a little African girl. I decided that I would <laughs> learn how to ski and snowboard. And I think it's hilarious for for my little tiny self to be out there snowboarding. I have to be good at it. <laughs> oh, man, that is too funny. And it's actually funny because I'm, I'm thinking about, you're right, when you were coming from, um, 
where you came from. My parents came from where they came from. It wasn't much. It wasn't that kind of snow when, when they were living. Um, but they, but they somehow managed it. And you, you're right. That that now has become home for you, um, for sure. And 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 in that, I guess let's talk a little bit about Push Buffalo, um, which stands for the People United for Sustainable Housing. But it's way, way, way more than that. It's a community organization that is working to create and implement a comprehensive revitalization plan for Buffalo's West Side. And I just wanted this, you to kind of get into that. That's really where I want people to really come from. I think that there are many cities, and we're very fortunate they're really tuning in to this uh, broadcast and this platform. And they're looking for a way to transform their city. So I really need you to kind of walk through that. So I really want you to kind of take a step. So one, what is Push Buffalo? They can understand it from the standpoint of the organization. And then when when you decided um, to really create and revitalize Buffalo West Side, explain what that looked like before. In other words, like give visually, like this was, this is what it was. It was either nothing there, it was factories or whatever that case may be. And then idea of the vision and then the things being done to make that vision happen. It's, it's very important for those who are in Flint or in Oakland or in Shreveport or in, you know, Orlando, those who are either already doing this or, 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 or want to see this. I can say for those who are listening that Push Buffalo and what is happening on Buffalo's West Side is something that the whole country should know about. So Robert, walk them through that for, so they can understand that if they are getting a, a master's class <laughs> on what it means to revitalize your community. Yeah. So as I said, uh, by 1970, Buffalo was pretty much decimated. Uh, unemployment was rampant. Um, and when we got here in 1984, it was quite a depressed city. It's probably why we were, you know, through the immigration process, we settled here is it was very affordable. There wasn't a lot of density. They needed people. So they're like, we're going to stick all the immigrants and refugees here, I guess. And so what was interesting about it, and I came in the first wave of immigrants and refugees, um, and it was a place that didn't have a plan B. Uh, the, the, you know, the jobs that were available in particular to uh, folks of color and um, you know, new immigrants coming in. Uh, with the service sector, so you barely made minimum wage, if that. There's a lot of wage theft. Uh, housing stock, it's beautiful housing, but it's the second oldest housing stock built before insulation was ever invented. So oftentimes, um, my family struggled to pay you know, the, the heating bill during the winter months where we were paying sometimes more for rent um, every month uh, during the cold months then we were uh, we were paying more for our utility, our gas, than we were our housing. Mm. Um, and you know, I came from a, a family of five, five five kids, and my mom. And you know, it was it was really a struggle. Um, I I started working when I was twelve years old uh, to help my mom pay the bills. And so that was that that is not an uncommon story, uh, in particular on the west side. And what's interesting about the west side that differentiates it from other parts of Buffalo, uh, in particular the east side of Buffalo, uh, where Main Street is our major dividing line, the haves and the have-nots. But, you know, the, the geography of the east side is about 
five times bigger than the west side of Buffalo. And uh, because that 85% of that community is African-American, uh, there was a, they demolished a lot of the homes, um, just rampant poverty. And so, you know, their issues are a little bit different than the east side, other than the west side. And the west side, uh, again, very poor, uh, literally one of the third poorest communities, and where an average family of four before Push got there was making, you know, $20,000 a year. Whoa. <laughs> yes, that kind of poverty. Um, and, you know, they were the working poor. Many people worked, they had several, but they're on minimum wage jobs. You just, it, you just couldn't make it work because the, the issues and the, the, the systemic issues and the root causes were so deep. But I always operate from a framework of assets, and I think that's what PUSH has done. I'm a practitioner of asset-based community development. And what they saw wasn't all the, those things that I just mentioned, but there was a level of density still um, on the west side. I would say 25% of the housing was abandoned or vacant. And there was a, kind of a, just a cultural fabric to it that was very interesting. Um, you know, initially, of course, that, that land belonged to the First Nations, the Mohawk Nation, the indigenous people. Over time, as immigration in Buffalo, and the immigration story is very big and still very much part of our narrative, uh, the Italians uh, settled on the west side of, community, uh, uh, the west side of Buffalo. And then I would say about 70 years ago, there was a huge influx of Latinos in, by way of Puerto Rico coming either from New York City or directly from Puerto Rico that started to settle there. There were cultural clashes. And then I would say about 35, 40 years ago, we started to see the first sort of migration from the east side of Buffalo to the east side, to the west side of African-Americans. Again, more cultural kind of things, you know, uh, clashes started to happen. And um, as I said, I was in the first wave of immigrants coming from Africa and all different parts of the world. But I would, 20 years ago, Buffalo became the second most resettled American city for immigrants. And our, my son who goes to the local school, International 45, there are 86 languages spoken there. Wow. And so there was something kind of really cool and different about this small little West Side that I grew up in. And so we saw that as assets. And, you know, Aaron and Eric, who co-founded Push Buffalo in 2005, uh, Aaron is from Buffalo, but, you know, did a lot of organizing and went to Harvard and graduated law school and um, organized for about a decade in New York City in the Boston area and decided to come back to his city and say, I want to do something about Buffalo. And I remember, you know, when I was young, a lot of the adults, as I was, you know, listening to adult conversation would say things like, oh my God, this city just has a dark cloud over it. Last one out, you know, turn the lights off. Like we should just all move out because there aren't any opportunities here. And so that became a mindset after, you know, a long time. But even in all parts of Buffalo, people called the city the city of good neighbors where um, we did take care of each other. You know, if you needed something, you can go to a neighbor and they would help you. One thing I'll say, uh, there are parts of my town that scare me still and are quite racist. But if my car were to ever break down in those neighborhoods in the middle of a snowstorm, 10 guys with, you know, um, the, you know, uh, certain flags outside their doors would come out and actually, you know, get me out of the snow and, okay, man, be on your way. Bye. 
you know? So there's something about that too. And I think it's important to highlight that. Uh, but it is seen sometimes it's not, it's not even going to be just too cold to be, it's not going to be too cold to be racist. Yeah, I know. Exactly. There's just something about that experience that everybody comes out to help everyone. It's, it's really a funny, funny thing. And I've experienced it a lot. Um, but then in 2005, when Aaron and Eric came, you know, I think they were just two organizers and they thought they would start an organizing organization. And so they went door knocking and canvassed and they got about 400 people in this community to be excited and wanted to attend the meeting. So we'll come. So from that, uh, these 400 people began to imagine and envision what their neighborhood would look like if we had the resources to make those dreams come true. Mm. And so we used very high level, like urban, you know, urban planning, charrettes, and we blew up people's maps every four blocks and had them sit within their four block radius and, and identify for us derelict properties, derelict lots, um, vacant houses, or, you know, or opportunities that they saw that they could, you know, imagine being there. And so they began to, you know, use crayons and markers and pencils and actually on the maps drew what they wanted. And from that, we prioritized the two major themes that came out of that. What people really wanted in this community was quality, affordable housing, because many of these homes were just not in livable conditions. And they wanted good paying jobs. These folks wanted to work and they wanted to be self-determined and to take care of their families. And so that was kind of like, okay, these are our walking papers. Now, of course, these two young men were very astute and, and you know, the historians themselves and had pretty good political analysis. So they started to do some research on how to make these things happen. And one of the biggest things that our community also said is we need community control of resources or community ownership of resources, because if you own it, then you can plan for it and no one can take it away from you down the road. So even as we were thinking about establishing a not-for-profit, community control of resources is very much at the center of our work. So I'm listening uh, around the country and they will say, well, we've had enterprising young people or people who have gone away and gotten a good education and come back home. We have that. Check the box. We, we've had the town hall meetings uh, when we've begun to have these conversations. Check the box there. We have uh, looked at our community, particularly when it's been um, sometimes run down or uh, not what we would want it to be. And we've identified issues of wanting quality, affordable housing, and wanting uh, good uh, 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 jobs with, with a living wage. Check the box there. But but sometimes it doesn't get beyond that. And so I think that you, you I, I'm just trying to get to what what was it that that helped to have that surge in development? What what was it there with what what was it there? What was the plans for the community, the development and their revitalization? Um, how is the community? How, how did that next step happen to move it so that what Push Buffalo is doing now that the entire country is looking at? What what was that step? 
I think the first step, believe it or not, was uh, did a little bit of research on those empty lots and um, vacant properties that the members, the community members themselves identified for us. So that was the research that we did. So then we started to follow up. We identified how many city-owned parcels there were. So we knew that the city has control of these. How do we get control of it? Some of them, it was landlords that live in China (laughs) or Russia. And so, okay, how do we get that? The other thing that we unveiled in that research, believe it or not, was, uh, do you guys remember Bear Stearns? It was the Mm -hmm. first big bank to um, investment bank to go under during the 2008 financial collapse. Well, they had gotten into some kind of Ponzi scheme with our then governor, George Pataki, where they had two sets of books and a lot of their investors. So Bear Stearns had bought up a lot of properties, thousands of properties in Buffalo, but you couldn't identify who the owners were. We couldn't even really get where the books were. Like it just, it was like this very mysterious thing. So somehow we, through the research, it led us to this Ponzi scheme. And so our first big campaign that Bush was known for was pretty brilliant, actually. They stenciled George Pataki's faith on the boarded up houses all over the city, not just on the west side. Put his personal phone number on it, started with 518, to call and ask George Pataki, who owns this house? Mm. I love it. You know, and we were, it was a pretty radical thing to do. And, you know, people, but people started to pay attention. Who is, who is Push? Who are these, where did they come from? You know, but also I'm interested in what they're doing. So we started a major campaign um, against Pataki. Um, Then luckily he got into some trouble of his own through other ways as well, not just the Bear Stearns situation. So he was not reelected. Actually, I think he left midterm and there was uh, his predecessor, who was the deputy um, governor, became um, governor. And this man knew of, the, of this problem and immediately released all of those properties to the city of Buffalo. Oh. So then we started working with the city of Buffalo to say, we want to buy them these houses cheap. And we want to buy this vacant land cheap. And at that time, believe it or not, it's, uh, it's unheard of. Which, so we were able to buy lots for $500, actual vacant structures for about $2,000 to $5,000. Now I can't even do a lot for $30,000, but that's not the story. So we started buying up as much land within a 25 square block area as we could. As a matter of fact, the first house that was ever bought from the interim auction, Eric Walker put, up, put down his personal check $500 as a down payment. And we didn't have any quite the planning. We didn't have any money. This organization was founded by a $30,000 fellowship from Greenpeace is how we got our articles of incorporation. And, but we just had faith <laughs> more than anything. I think just said, okay, we've got faith. So we started a, uh, what we call a land bank. So we started to buy up all the properties and put it into what is now known the Buffalo Neighborhood Stabilization Corporation, which is um, part of Push Buffalo, but it's our development arm, and just started land banking as many properties. And we bought about, at that time, I would say in the first few years, about 100 properties, both vacant structures and land. And then over time, and we continue to do this, we have um, developed them into green affordable housing. We have built community gardens. 
We have built community spaces that are affordable. We um, have built uh, renewable energy projects and community solar. Um, but every single one of these for us is getting to the good paying jobs from members of our community. So we train our community members and put them into work in our own development projects. And so, we're, you know, I, I mean, we've done this pretty successfully. And, you know, as we started to do more, we started figuring out how the development process actually works. So we are now able to acquire property in many different ways, including buying them from, you know, directly from folks who own them. Uh, we go to the in-rem process and try to buy off of the foreclosure list. But we also now can do a developer designation. So we research what properties the city has under its control through their real estate office. And we put in um, a project together that, that we've you know, co-designed with our members. And we say, we want you to hold these properties for us for a developer designation and we'll buy it directly from you. What will you sell it to us for? And we've also done things like you know, low-income housing tax credits and other things. And now we're moving towards home ownership. So it, it, wow. what it is, is it's, it's using the emergent strategy before the book Emergent Strategy came out, uh, but really saying what we're doing is centering people and planet and the people will design. We, what, we, we often say at Push, what we know what we want where we live and that residents are developed right? We can revitalize and build our own neighborhoods. We don't need anybody else to come do this for us or to us. And so that is still, you know, um, at, the, at the core of our work, that's who we are. Uh, we have an organizing de department that engages residents um, working on policy issues. For example, uh, the eco-justice team that we've been working with has um, Pass the most comprehensive and equitable climate legislation in the country, the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. We are continuing to work on the implementation of that to make sure that 35 to 40 percent of any clean energy funds go to communities like ours to actually address the harm that's been caused with these communities being, you know, sacrifice zones um, and for that those investments will be used for what the community wants, modeling pushes sort of, um, you know, uh, model, which is maybe it's to invest in new housing, maybe it's to invest in the transition of fossil fuel, um, you know, utilities to renewable utility. It might be for creating community gardens where there are food deserts. Um, so not to just look at it through the lens of, I'm just going to clean up this pollution. No, I'm actually going to address the harm that we've caused in these communities. Man, that is, uh, I am so excited to hear um, how you did that. And for those listening, yes, and hopefully applauding um, what Push Buffalo did and is doing, um, Robert just gave an amazing masterclass on, on getting there. One thing you mentioned, I think that's very important for those of us in the movement to understand. And I've heard this from a lot of the, the elders. They said, if you really want to understand racism, then understand urban planning. If you understand urban planning, you will understand racism. And that's important. And I think that what you and Push Buffalo from the founders up and up to you now um, were able to understand was to get the plans for the city and who owned what property. And I think taking control, community control over your, your destiny was so important. And I think a lot of times when we're having these conversations, 
Um, we're not we're not getting we, we don't know who owns what. Um, we don't we, we're not sometimes in different cities around the country. We don't we don't understand um, uh, how community development can play a part. So thank you for that. Um, I guess what that leads this is kind of a hard question, or this not a hard question, but this is a it's another way to deal with when we have these communities that then begin to become revitalized, the next thing from that come gentrification. Absolutely. And so, and communities are afraid because they feel like you're cleaning this up for somebody else. It's not for me. So what's your response to that? Is Push Buffalo um, mindful of that? And, and, and how do you deal with that uh, critique? Oh, first of all, we have to be. Uh, I would say that uh, six or seven years ago, gentrification was not even in the colloquialism of, Bush, of, of, of the city of Buffalo. People would have thought you were crazy. That yep, we can't focus on that. We have so many problems. Like I said, our our you know the city's designed for six hundred thousand people, and we have three hundred thousand people living here. And so, what I say to that though is yes, and right. The forces of gentrification, the way they work in history, and you have to understand that history is that. You know, um, when they decided that, you know, white people and white flight um, that we saw in the 60s and 70s and 80s, um, that was by design because they didn't want to live in those communities with, with black folks and they wanted to, you know, be out in the suburbs. But the interesting thing is, if you actually study that, most people that live in the suburbs work in the city so that now you have a reduced tax base. You all the resources that they are taking are they're taking out to the suburbs. Oftentimes, their tax base goes you know lower, so they're paying less for the taxes. They have more land to be just by themselves, but they're taking all of the resources from the city to those places. Uh, so the cycles of poverty actually deepen. But there's money to be made in that. The people when they decided they were going to build the suburbs made a lot of money developing the suburbs. Mm. Now there's this excitement to move back to the cities. And what's interesting about that is these large developers have been sitting on those properties that they got for next to nothing for decades. And what we are seeing with gentrification is now those people are making millions of dollars yet again. So it's like they get you on the way out and they get you on the way back, right? And so I think poor people and and people of color have to be very mindful of this so the strategy of community control was from the start, the strategy that we were using to slow down gentrification or get ahead of it if it's possible, as quickly as possible. We didn't pick, we also selected this community that had a concentration of poverty, but what was unique about it is you go five blocks to Richmond Avenue and the, um, the, the median household income jumps by 67 thousand dollars immediately on the next block that Mm. is and so we were we were very smart and if you study jane jacobs she writes a lot about this um what she said is we know that when there is a poor community next to a thriving community that that is actually the first place of that gentrification is going to occur because when gentrification happens even the people that are in that community they're going to be priced out and pushed out so where are they going to go to the abutting neighborhood. So for us, it was like, hey, everyone, this might not happen for 10 years, it might not happen for 15 years, but this will happen. And we were convinced of it. Of course, this is the, the fastest gentrifying community in Buffalo. 
I don't know that we've gotten ahead of it, but we've certainly stamped ourselves where we didn't quite get to the 30% concentration of affordability in that neighborhood, but we're at about 20 to 25. So that's something. And everything that we are building is going to be permanently affordable. And we're looking at generational wealth building through new economy strategies. And so we've been building out our new economy strategy for the last five to six years around ownership and control. And we do that not just owning our labor by turning our hiring hall, which is our workforce development program, into a worker-owned cooperative, working on weatherization, insulation, renewable energy, and tech jobs. Then we're looking at we're about to own our energy future. We would love to build, that's our next project that I would love to get off the ground, which is a one megawatt community solar project hmm. where our community members own that and begin to create generational wealth that way. So we're looking at a bunch of different strategies to address the gentrification question because one organization isn't going to fix it, right? Um, it, it's like, you know, once it begins, it happens too quickly. But I think what we've done on the West side is certainly created a situation where it's not going to be completely gentrified and the people are going to be a hundred percent displaced. Man, that's, 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 I'm, I'm so grateful that you, you, you gave that explanation and that's something that I think is such a, a critical part of our conversation as we continue to deal with that. Um, it'll be things that you're doing uh, with Push Buffalo and how you're working on the, on Obviously, from you know, also let's say to people is it's hard because you have to do all of these things simultaneously. Mm. Uh, what I've always appreciated about Audrey Lord is you know her, her one of her most prominent uh, slogans, which is to be careful of building the single issue. None of us are. That's right. Issue. That's <laughs> and so you know I, I know that in, you know this in the climate justice movement we oftentimes use the word intersectionality and thinking more holistic and thinking about regenerative economies and that's how we build the beloved community and the beloved economy and so you know that's that's the practice that we're in is it perfect absolutely not is it hard absolutely the powers that be are tremendous but how are we continuing to build power in essence to affect change and yes, there, I, I'm sure we could have probably five shows on the problems with the not-for-profit industrial complex. I, too, understand the limitations and how it is problematic. However, that is the tool that we can use right now. But how can we, even within using that tool, begin to change the rules enough that we will actually create new systems that are much more um, rooted in care? You know, and, and that's important, but the thing that as you're, you're saying that, and I want to kind of get to you from a personal standpoint, because I think you are phenomenal because when people first think about the climate movement, maybe not to don't ever have a, look at the deep dive, which is why we have this platform, is that they don't think about Rawa as being one of the leaders in this climate space, right? And not, and not even think about Push Buffalo and what is being done on the ground. And so we need to change that framework. But we, the, I, I come across so many amazing women and women of color who are leading this movement um, and to me are the hope to saving this planet. And so I guess with that, you know, how do you, how, how do you feel about that? Because that's also a part of it. Because even when you have to go, as you mentioned, 
from the nonprofit industrial complex to other distills within the movement. That's right. There's a way that you have to explain and go through, even before you get to the crux of what you just talked about, your master class you just gave on what on, on what Push Buffalo did and how and, and, and what it is doing now. But how do you see that? Because I, I see that as something that's critical, as if we're going to broaden this movement, yeah. we're going to begin to create trust within other communities, it's going to have to come from people looking like them leading organizations. So one, how do you feel about your role? And what would be your advice to a movement who don't think you exist? Yeah, uh, that is a very big question, and I appreciate you because, um, as you know, uh, the Solutions Project has been a major partner of PUSH since it started, and, and thanks to Sarah Shanley Hope and Mark Ruffalo and her entire team. But what I, we've had this conversation, and what I appreciate about the Solutions Project is they actually went and did the research. So there's a great Stanford study now that actually shows that 95% of all climate or you know, environmental justice funding goes to large environmental organizations. And that is decades old history. 92% of that funding goes to white, cisgendered male leaders within the, within the climate justice and environmental movement. So only 8% is left to go to leaders of color, to even white women, to certainly black women. And then of that, only like point or, or less than 1% goes to indigenous communities. What's interesting about that is, as we are now you know, living the climate crisis, the climate justice leaders um, are the ones that are doing the most innovative and most impactful and effective interventions in their communities. Things like Push Buffalo, that's looking at you know, addressing racial justice and, and, and economic justice in order to address the climate crisis, because it's really globally that the racial injustices that we experience and the economic inequities that exist that have caused the climate crisis. And we're very clear about that. So what we've been doing with many partners across the country, including you know folks like Nathaniel Smith from uh, the uh, pa uh, Partnership for Southern Equity, uh, folks at Thunder Bay, um, is that we are showing by what we, because we're able to demonstrate what we are doing, but more importantly, we're doing funder organizing. And this is how we change the rules. We change where the money's coming from and to who. And, you know, I have a running thing where it's like, if you want to see real change, invest in frontline communities, invest in the people, because we're able to actually be more effective than the large EnviroGreens. Enviro Think about sustainable solutions better than the envir you know, environmental community. And we do it with much less resources. So if you actually resource the people on the ground that are on the front lines of this, you would see significant impactful change within a decade. And so that's the fund organizing we're doing. That's you know, the Solutions Project. And now we have a growing community of amazing program officers and philanthropic leaders that are also doing that. Um, and so I think we have to keep doing more of that. And then to my, you know, folks that are on the front lines, be bolder, you know, let's get more networked um, and, and ask for what you need because often we don't, times we don't do that and we underestimate and undervalue 
you know, in, in a way that, and that we don't do it to ourselves, like intentionally, we do it because that's how the bigger communities, what, what they've done to us is we're not poor people. We are not poor communities. We are underestimated communities. We are undervalued communities, you know, and that is a big sort of shift in how we think about our own power. Um, so I don't know if that's an answer, but I, I no, that's a, that's a powerful answer. No, no, you, you gave a, you gave them, and we love the so for the record, we we love solutions too. <laughs> Those are our partners. Those are our 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 our, our, our warriors in the side by side. We we you know we 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 uh thank them. Actually, as I mentioned before, I mentioned this offline that when we first started Think One Hundred Percent, the platform it started as a hat, and they were with us. They actually, if you have one of the original hats, it's our logo. Bubba Caucus and Solutions, we thank them. Bubba, I just want to ask you this. I just have one other question for you. Um, and thank you for your time. My question really is, and there's so much we can talk about. We have to really, I, I really want to follow up with Push Buffalo. So hopefully you'll make sure and give those around the country and come back on because there's so much more because you are, again, amazing and have so much to give to this conversation. I guess this one thing I just know how, how are the community, how is the community of Buffalo dealing with the COVID crisis? I'm just actually curious about that. Uh, it's been devastating. Uh, it's been very empowering on one level because it's the people that are coming together to help each other, other organizations coming together and working with each other in, a, in the most coordinated network way that I've ever experienced. We, of course, immediately pivoted back in March to providing mutual aid. To our community members, we provided 169 uh, families. Uh, we uh, gave special preference to uh, women of color, frontline workers, and people living in the zip code 14215 because they have the worst health outcomes, and many of them are frontline workers, uh, rental assistance. Um, and we have provided more than 4,200 meals to families and grocery shopping, um, household cleaning products masks. Um, we provided diapers and formula and, you know, just continuing to check on each other. We're still working remotely. Um, but I think what's also been quite sad is I think people can now see uh, that our city leadership is, is not what we need them to be. Uh, they are not the leaders that are going to help us with this crisis and the impending economic crisis that's coming. We are, of course, hoping for a just recovery. And we need to be thinking so much more creatively and not do things the way we did before. Also, I don't want to go back to the way things were. Mm. You know, uh, we, you know, we've been shouting these inequities from the mountaintops for decades in the climate justice movement. And of course, we know that the pandemic has laid it, made it completely clear to everyone. And as long as you're not looking away, uh, I think there is something amazing that it's like a global intervention that you know the creator or whatever you know sun or plant you to is it is really just trying to show us that it is now is the moment to make a significant shift now is the moment to root in love and justice now is the moment to create economies that actually work for everyone and if they work for the planet they should work for the people and um i've I, and then of course you know the george floyd um murder that occurred i've never seen so many young in particular black brown youth that are out there in the street. Um, and 
it's, it's, it's been incredibly powerful. So for me, it's about actually thinking about the next generation of leaders who are even more emboldened, who are even more creative um, in supporting them and making sure that they are being you know, safe and healthy, but thinking in terms of like, what is the pipeline? How many of these folks can come take my job? Because I think if you're an actual good organizer, the goal of an organizer is always to out-organize yourself out of a job because you've met the, the demand and the need. And so I think that for me, we're living in a, in, a, in a world that has serious dichotomy, but the opportunities are there and it's going to go one of two ways. Either we are going to win and, uh, or, or we are not. But I think that um, you know, this crisis can be a portal to the, the regenerative and um, you know, resilient economy that we're all seeking. Hmm. Thank you. Rabbi, if folks want to find you or they want to find Push Buffalo or they want to donate, if y'all want to donate, y'all, y'all hear, y'all hear this good work from Push Buffalo. Let them know how they can find you and Push Buffalo and how they can get engaged. Sure. It's really easy to find me. You can go to my website, which is www.pushbuffalo.org, one word, or my email address is R-A-H. W-A, my first name, at pushbuffalo.org. Um, and yeah, besides wanting to donate, which you absolutely can do, and you can donate to our mutual aid work, or you can donate for to other programs. But more importantly, there's a bunch of amazing reports on how we have done this, uh, whether it's our energy work, whether it's the green development zone, whether it's you know passing these policies, and just kind of how we think about our work. And also, if you want to see pictures of the most incredible, beautiful human beings that live in our community, and hopefully you will be inspired by them. And the fact that we're building a multi-racial, multi-generational movement, um, that's what it looks like. And, and yeah, so there's a ton of great resources on the website. Uh, thank you so much. And we definitely, and I look forward, when I come back to Buffalo, I'm definitely going to start past Push Buffalo. And uh, and hang for a little bit. So thank you, Rawa, for your time, and thank you for your for your leadership and who, who you are. Well, I just want to say thank you so much. Thank you to your audience, and I'm a huge, huge fan. So I hope we do come back to Buffalo and we can spend a little time together. That'd be amazing. That's Rawa Gomatian, and she's executive director of Push Buffalo. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think100Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit thecoolestshow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100% which is a non-profit project. Thank you for listening and all power to the people. Big one.